0: Genesis chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. And I love what we're doing for camp this year, the idea of telling one story. And as we think about one story, it's so important, since we're trying to finish the whole Bible, that we get stuck in Genesis chapter 3 for a little while. And you may think that's not very good progress. There's a lot of pages to go. But I'm not sure there's any chapter that's more important to understand if you're going to understand the rest of the story. You can't understand basic parts of your life or any of the unfolding story of God apart from the events in Genesis chapter 3. Talking about Genesis chapter 3 with church kids is a great challenge. Talking about Genesis chapter 3 with Christians of any age is a great challenge. Because Genesis chapter 3 is one of those chapters in the Bible that many Christians are ashamed of because it has such a seemingly silly and seemingly strange story involving, well how do you say this? A talking snake. And so for a Christian to say that our whole worldview and really the very beginning of the Christian religion Starts first with God as creator and then naked people in a garden and a talking snake might be intimidating for you. Some of you are going to college next year and you're going to be confronted with antagonistic and atheistic professors. And if you don't have confidence that you have the beginning of the story right, then I'm not sure you'll be able to Understand or defend a Christian worldview at all. And so Genesis chapter 3 is so important for you personally. It's also important because the unfolding of the story doesn't make any sense. If you don't know what sin is or why sin is such a problem, then why would God kill his son? Why would there be long lists of things prohibited for God's people? all throughout the Old Testament and then even things in the New Testament that God's people shouldn't be known for, shouldn't do. Well, unless you have an understanding that's theological, that's profound, that takes Genesis chapter three both literally and like the parable that it is because it is a historical story about how this world came to be the way it is, but it's also a a universal story The kind of story that explains why life is the way that life is. You don't have to choose whether it's a literal telling of something that happened in the garden. It was that. But it's also something more powerful than that. The symbolism of this story, you'll see as the story unfolds across the Bible and even into the end of the age, if you don't understand what happened that caused man's banishment from the garden, then you won't understand why you and I live in a world that we're still expelled from paradise. That's the power and the magnificence and the importance of Genesis chapter 3. And though you've heard the story a million times, I want you to try to listen to it with fresh ears and see if we can understand the origin story of sin. We'll look at it with three questions and I'll read it to you in just a moment, but let me give you the questions at the outset. First, where did sin come from? What's the origin of sin? Where did sin come from? That's gonna be question number one. And I can't satisfy all your inquiries about that, but I can only go so far as the Bible talks about the origin of sin and evil. And so we'll look at that a little bit. Number two, what is the nature of sin? What exactly is sin? Is it whatever you say it is? Is it whatever feels like sin is? How do you define what sin is? What is sin? That's the question about the nature of sin. The third question we'll look at is what are the consequences of sin? What happens once sin enters this world? So what's the origin, what's the nature, and what's the consequences? That's the job we have to do this morning. Let's read God's word and then ask for God's spirit to help us understand it. Starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth In pain you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles It shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam, his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord said, Behold, And the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the very word of the living God. Let's ask for his help. Father, may your spirit teach us as you promised it would. May the hearts here who are far off, far away from you, who are deep in sin and rebellion, understand their predicament better this morning. And may they seek the cure. God, for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that this word from you, that this revelation from you, would be grace for them, would be mercy in a time of great need. As they learn to do battle against sin, And as they learn to live as fully realized, fallen creatures in need of your grace, help and assist and enable them to follow you and avoid temptation's power. Help us to understand this word in Jesus' name. Amen. You can't miss this part. You can't go get popcorn. And then come back and see Jesus and 12 disciples in a boat. Without understanding the origin of sin, the nature of sin, and the consequences of sin as it first appeared in human history, we can't understand anything that's to follow. Last night, Josh showed us God's orderly creation And the pinnacle of that creation being man made in the image and likeness of God. In some profound ways, human beings are not homo faber, makers of tools, or homo sapiens, just cognizant beings. Humans are actually the crown of God's creation made in his likeness and image. Humans are intended to be like God, their creator. And we saw God make man out of not nothing like the universe and the trees and the animals, but he made man out of something very natural, out of dirt, out of earth, out of the ground. But he also made man, and this is your origin story, out of something supernatural, his breath. And as God breathed on that earth, he made something both natural and supernatural, and that's you. Never for a minute doubt what an amazing creature you are made in the image and likeness of God, the crown, the pinnacle, the climax of God's creation, you are of God and of this earth. And you were there with your first parents. You weren't born yet, but you were there in the same way that You were there when your grandparents immigrated to America or your ancestors moved from this place to this place. This is your family tree. And you were present in Adam and in his wife Eve. And as we heard last night, they lived in a perfect world. There was no flaw in them. And they themselves were perfectly innocent given responsibilities and and blessings and in that amazing opening chapter of the bible we see all of us as creatures fashioned from dust physical matter god breathed and godlike natural and supernatural careful for us to not think too much of ourselves because we are dirt but not think too little of ourselves either, because God made us and breathed us into existence. Our spiritual history began with perfection in the garden and innocence and responsibility and a deep fellowship with a universe that was centered around its creator. The one who made us was at the focal point of everything that Josh told us last night. God as center, God as first, God as last, all of creation ordered around the worship of God. Man and woman had deep and profound spiritual fellowship and intimacy with God depicted in this story as walking in the garden. How do you walk in the garden with a spiritual being, God? I don't know. But it represents something profoundly intimate. And that's our spiritual history before decay and disaster. God, the center of the story. God so personal, so involved, so intimate with his creation. And we see that mankind is is one, that that story is our story, that God's image is in us still. But in Genesis chapter 3, we see what the New Testament calls one act of disobedience. And they lay on us an understanding of why the world is the way that it is, why the headlines are always bad news. Why where there is such a thing as the Holocaust and genocides and dictators? And why the ordinary manifestations of sin in this world from bullies at school to mean-spirited siblings to 10,000 lusts and a hundred other violations of God's nature and character, where they all came from? Every broken rule in this world is in sharp contrast to that perfect fellowship we had with God when he was at the center. So Genesis chapter 3 is a revolution of defiance as the first man and his wife desire what is forbidden And it's a tragic story that sets the entire rest of the human story, part of that story we are in right now, into motion, and we have to understand it. This universal parable that's also physical and historical and real because if adam isn't real then jesus isn't real and moses isn't real then you and i aren't real none of that matters unless this is a real story but the the universal application of this story is what explains all the difficult questions that we face as sinners as distinct individuals Coming from Adam So what do we learn from this chapter About sin's origin Number one Where did sin come from Well get out of your head Any kind of goofy flannel graph Uh, You're welcome to leave the trees Covering the parts the trees should cover In the Bible Children's storybook Those artists are very good With their placement of plants Thankfully so And get out of your head any idea or conception of kind of a magical tree or something that's better for Lord of the Rings or, uh, como se dice, uh, Lord Voldemort, como se dice, Harry Potter. Thank you. This isn't a magical story. Everything in this story originates with God, none of this happens apart from God. And get out of your head something that God has against apples over and above any other fruit. I don't know that he's against any fruits except kumquats. Have you ever had a kumquat? It's an abhorrent fruit. I believe the fruit in the forbidden tree was a kumquat. But it's not that God prefers pomegranates or apples or anything like that. Also, to understand the origin of sin, you have to get out of your head this kind of dualistic tendency that that we have, even in storytelling, where there's this ultimate good and this ultimate evil. You see this snaky devil come in, and now we think, well, there's the arch nemesis. There's the dark side to the light side of the force. There's the one who shall not be named to uh, young Harry. So whatever it is that you have this kind of ability to just say there's the ultimate good in God and the ultimate evil in Satan, this story puts that completely away because the devil is a creature here. All of this is under God's authority. He peers like a snake And he's still called snake-like, an old serpent in the book of Revelation, and it's probably one of his many guises. And there's certainly a story that came before this story, one that may be alluded to in Isaiah chapter 11 about how did the devil fall, as one of these princes of the earth, as he's described, says that he wants to be like God, but that's not a story for today. This story is how we fell, how we were banished. How did this come about? And and this is the origin. So no dualism, no magic goofy stuff, no silly superficial kind of treatments here. Instead, take the word of God when it says the serpent was more, my Bible says, crafty. And that's a funny word, isn't it? Crafty to me means like, you know, your mom's on Pinterest and she's making buttons and stuff. The word there is, is subtle. It's a word used in Proverbs in both positive and negative ways. This devil was God's devil and he was made with great intelligence and he had this ability to both persuade and beguile. And so he is subtle, he's also shrewd, he has skill skill and an ability to deceive. And he hasn't changed from that day to this day. And he's still your mortal enemy. And this devil, who rebelled against God, decides to attack the woman first. And he does this in powerful ways and it teaches us a lot about what sin is but I need you to remember in the origin story of sin where did it come from it didn't come out of nowhere there is something about the rebellion of man and even the the rebellion of the devil and his fallen angels that will ultimately be used to bring glory and beauty and Authority and worship to God. This is God's story, not the devil's story. This is God's story, and human beings are a part of that story. And so it should comfort and encourage us that the greatest tragedy the universe has ever known, the fall of mankind, The rebellion of the devil and his angels is something that ultimately happened under the authority and sovereignty of God because the devil, this crafty serpent, belongs to God. He's underneath God. Though he is rebellious to God, he can't move one inch apart from the sovereign authority of God and neither can you. This whole story begins with God. Now God is not the author of evil. In other words, there is nothing in God that is dark, shadowy, immoral, imperfect, sinful, or evil. Nothing at all. But the fact that evil exists is shown to us here And what's explained to us here is that because Adam and Eve were duped by the serpent, we will be born into sin. That's what we can understand about the origin of sin and evil from Genesis 3. I wish I could give you more than that, but the Bible is very silent. Instead, it focuses on our predicament so that it can show us the ultimate solution, But we're not there yet. So question number two. Question number two. What is the nature of sin? Or what does sin consist of? Well, you see it in the serpent's questions that he asks to Eve. Right there in verse one, the first question is, Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You see, all sin, and what you'll find in this story is what you'll find true of the sin that you've dealt with, that you've been face-to-face with, the sin that you've seen when you look in the mirror and when you contemplate the realities of the wrong desires of your own heart. This is universally true. Sin is a defiance of God's word and God's will. Sin is a defiance of God's word and God's will. And the devil begins by casting doubt onto Eve's status in life. He subtly distorts the word of God. He's basically asking her, what are the limitations that you have? Imagine for a second being able to go on the dream vacation you've always wanted to go on. Maybe it's Disneyland. Maybe it's Paris. Maybe it's Juarez. I don't don't know, wherever you want to go. But you've always wanted to go there. And when you get there, your itinerary is planned out and your tour guide is about to take you to see things you've always wanted to see. Cinderella's castle you've dreamed of this moment you've always wanted to see the gangs of Juarez whatever it is and as you are about to embark on your tour he spends the entire time telling you the things that you will never be able to see in this place would it diminish it? Potentially, but in this story, this tour guide with his subtle and skillful attack is actually taking someone who exists in a place called the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is way better than Disneyland, way better than Paris, way better than Ciudad Juarez. The Garden of Eden was perfect. The freedom that they had there was immense. And so somehow the devil is able to insert this small kind of doubt and distortion, asking about what privileges she doesn't have. You know, if we had a greater awareness of our privileges, of the goodness of God, I think sin would lose some of its temptation. But for Eve, in her innocence, she's duped by this serpent. There's a denial here because he goes on to say, after she says, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, because he's saying, can you eat from any of these trees? Well, of course they can. The plants were their food, according to Genesis 1 and 2. And so Eve then says, God has said, you shall not eat from it, verse 3, or touch it lest you die. Well, wait a minute. That's not what God said. Do you see how a a questioning of the woman's privileges has now led Miss Eve to start to add to God's word, to make God more strict than he really was? If you look at verse 17 of chapter two, God didn't say anything about not touching the tree. Where did that come from? Somehow legalism creeps in before the fall has even happened fully. Somehow an ability to see God as strict instead of generous was right there in Eve as she starts to succumb to the devil's temptation. Her defiance is on the rise already because she sees this as overly strict, God said, don't eat it. She says, we can't eat it, and we can't touch it. Beep. Not allowed. That's not true. You see, all of a sudden, her universe is starting to circle around, no longer God, but around a new center, a new object, It's no longer defined as this is God's world and I'm His creature and this is the the freedom and joy He's given me. Instead, it's I can't do this and I probably shouldn't even do this either. And slowly she's becoming the center of this world rather than God as she exaggerates the restrictions and she magnifies His strictness. And we do this all the time when we think About temptation and sin. How often have you exaggerated how difficult God's demands are? How often have you complained about the parameters that have been placed around you by your parents? Exaggerating and imagining the freedom that you lack. What else does she do? And along with the devil, as he leads her through this, the serpent says, verse 4, you shall surely not die. And now he is lying and he's contorting what God has said because God has used that same language. You surely shall die. He uses this same strong language. You surely shall die. Literally, it's death, certainly death. For God knows that in that day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And here the devil is mixing both true things and false things about sin. It will open her eyes. The age of innocence will come to a screeching halt. They will be like God in this way. They will understand good and evil. But do you understand that this wasn't about swallowing a chunk of fruit This was about knowing something that God only knew because of his omniscience. In other words, God knows everything. So God knows about the existence and limits and power of evil. But Eve and Adam would not learn it the way God learned it. God never participated in evil before. God never sinned before. But God knew everything but when they would have their eyes opened, they would know both sin and evil, both good and bad, right and wrong, not because they had gained knowledge, but because they had plunged into an experience of sin. Do you see what's happening here? They are trading a world centered around God, And around the blessings and goodness that God promises them. They're trading fellowship with God. A world made and focused on Him. Made by Him and focused on Him. For a world where they will be at the center. Their desires. Their lusts. Their wanting to be first. Their wanting to be over others. Their wanting to be worshipped. Their wanting to be right. And so they have something, they will have something that God had. God had always had a full knowledge of good and evil. And now they will have an experiential. By practice, they'll know evil. They'll know evil because they will be evil. Because they will taste evil. And they move into a whole new moral framework as they participate in rebellion. One author says it this way. So the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. All these things I will give thee. Satan said the same words to Jesus later in the story. But we're not there yet. So she takes it, verse six, she, there's a little etymology of temptation here or she sees that the tree was good, that it was a delight to the eyes, that was desirable to make one wise and she took from it its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. I mean, sin makes you stupid, number one. Sin wrecks your life, number two. Number 13, sin makes you not think as things really are. And because she's starting to feel this pull and draw, because she's entertaining temptation's power, it's just step after step after step. Notice that the snake didn't grab the apple off the tree with his fangs, pop it in the air, tonk it with his rattler down into her mouth. Sin is never forced on you. That excuse that you made when you wrecked your parents' car, it makes as much sense as a snake rattle, bicycle kick, apple. You sin, friend, because you want to. Every time you do wrong, it's because it appeals to you. When you are a sweet, fat baby, so sweet, so fat, so baby, no one had to teach you to be mean. Babies can be mean. Little babies. Time to stop eating, little baby. (sighs) Time to change your diaper, little baby. (sighs) Weird, instinctual meanness. And when you were a little kid and your sister was born, do you know what your response was? Maybe at first it was, Oh, baby. (laughs) And they were like, oh sweet, he he's likes his new little sister, but really you were trying to eat her. <laughs> because it wasn't too long until the siblings went like, how come nobody's looking at me and going, oh cute, sweet, fat baby. You see, sin is so in us, in our nature now. That when we see its first occurrence in humanity in this garden scene, it's so telling. Because when you sin, it's just like this. You see that it was good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. You contort God's word. You rebel against him. You have this same kind of thinking about your own lusts and desires you exaggerate, you twist the scripture, you underrate what the penalty will be. Surely I won't die. God's merciful, isn't he? And you don't realize your privileges. And that leads to the consequences is what happens in verse seven. Now mankind has been plunged into sin from this point forward. Both their eyes were opened. They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. There's a lot we could say here. But we're keeping this PG-13 high school camp. What's going on with all the naked? There's a lot of naked in this story. Thankfully, strategically placed branches Hallelujah. But I think the best way for you to understand the powerful symbolism that comes with these coverings, with this innocent man and woman in the garden without no clothes on, is for you to understand something you understand very well, even better than that scene. And it's the idea of shame. You have Felt shame. I know you have. You have felt ashamed. Guilty. In fact, you hope right now that the things that bring you shame will not be found out and exposed. That's the nature of shame. And we all have experienced it. So I want you to imagine what life would be like if you had never felt ashamed. It's almost incomprehensible because it's so much a part of life in a fallen world. But in this moment, our first parents, Adam and Eve, feel shame for the first time. They feel the weight of guilt for the first time. They realize the consequences of their rebellion for the first time. They feel like sinners because they are sinners. And you, as you come into this world and become more and more aware of your evil desires as you do bad stuff and you want bad stuff as you say things that you from your heart mean completely but know you have to apologize for you are realizing age by age and day by day that you are a big sinner every one of us is And we feel shame and we do all kinds of things to push that shame down. We rationalize it. We do like they did in the garden and we hide our sin. We pretend it's not so bad or we try to think about other things. Do you know how many people lead lead their entire lives trying to cover up shame? They try to find the cure at the bottom of a bottle to numb the pain. They try to pursue different relationships because they have broken that one so badly that they think maybe I'll just start again with someone new. And then they just repeat that same awful, selfish, sinful cycle. Young people, if you learn today the power of guilt and shame in your life to point you to God's mercy... You could live a very different kind of life than so many generations that went before you. And so they feel shame. That's one of the consequences. They also realize that sin is a big deal, that heaven can make no truce with sin. They've been given a world by God to live in with supreme dignity and now their eyes are open and so they hide because they know they can't get back what they have forsaken. In other words, once you taste sin, you will never be able to taste innocence again. Their fellowship is broken with one another as they point fingers and blame. God asks Adam where he is. It's not because God was like working in his wood shop or making different kinds of experimental animals. Guys, check this one out it's an okapi. No, he asks a very telling question. He asks a question that is theological, it's a God question. Where are you? Where are you in relation to me? Not, are you actually hiding behind that rock? I'm God, I'm omniscient. He's not asking them, what's your GPS location? Where are you? But do you notice that in that question, they are being pursued by God and not destroyed by God? That God's grace is already on display as He invites them to come out, to come forth. And as they blame each other, and as they hear the consequences of their sin spelled out for them in the curse, that their fellowship with each other is broken, that they start to blame each other because of their shame, the curse has implications on the man, and implications on the woman, and implications on the devil, and implications on the ground, all of creation. Every order of it is now cursed. The angelic realm, the human realm, the animal realm, the terrestrial realm is all now under the curse of sin. Everything has changed. It has become a crushed and broken world and before the next chapter and the page turns a brother will murder his brother in cold blood and then rape and then incest and then every kind of sin imaginable that marks the headline to this day will be covered sufficiently in the book of Genesis. And then all on and on and on sin will march on crushing and cursing mankind and god will say to Cain and Abel that sin is waiting at the door crouching there you must master it but the long term effects is that man will remain banished he will remain in need of being covered because of his shame and he will not be able to come up with a solution for his problems but we'll have to look to God who makes a promise right in the middle of the curse that someday someone will come and he will crush the head of that serpent and he will bring about some kind of change. Verse 15, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And so God banishes man because eternal life will not be accomplished by them grabbing from another tree. But God has another way to affect their restoration. The Bible goes on in this story to show us that Adam's sin is shown to have implicated all men because he's the source of us all. The book of Romans will say sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Derek Kidner says this poetically and beautifully, so simple the act when the devil said to take and eat, so simple the act, so hard the undoing. God himself will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. But we're not to that part of the story yet. The story could have gone a different way. And some have imagined what it would have been like if Adam would have turned down that apple. How would he have done it? No, I'm not into apples. I prefer pomegranates like God does. He could have said, God, this one's broke. Gonna need another one from the factory. I got more ribs left. What should he have done? Turned up his nose at it? What should Adam have done? Well, when he was offered that apple, he should have realized that this woman represented him. And that when she was lost, he was done for. And instead of going to her and taking that apple, she should have brought her to God, but not pushed her forward for punishment. He should have done what the next Adam will do. He should have brought her to God and stood between her and God and said, take me instead. Because another Adam will do that. But we're not to that part of the story yet. And still, instead we're still here with the serious consequences of sin as disastrous and eternal. And we're still waiting for God to show us that he can clothe his children, not in animal skins, but in someone else's innocence. But we're not to that part of the story yet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. So abundantly clear, even in this tragic tale of loss and rebellion. Help this truth to sink into our hearts as we think about us. Rebels, rebels by nature, rebels by choice, sinners in need of cleansing and forgiveness and mercy, but unable to get back into the garden, unable to restore innocence lost banished and separated, helpless, hurting, hating God and hating one another. May knowing and understanding the depths of our sin help us to know and understand the depths of the remedy. In Jesus' name, amen.